Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. Hello, fellow geeks. Last year, as you may remember from episode 22, I attended the 2017 Writers of the Future Awards. While there, I got a chance to interview author Kevin J. Anderson, who was one of the judges. Alas, the audio went to the bad place, lost in the ether. However, he thankfully was happy enough to do a phone interview with me later that month. Author of more than 140 books, you may know him for his work in the Star Wars or Dune universes, or from his original work such as the Saga of Seven Sons. As with my interview with fellow Writers of the Future Award judge Nancy Kress, we delve deep into his writing process, including the differences between writing original fiction and works based in someone else's universe, writing comics, and more. This is Kevin J. Anderson. I am a writer and publisher and public speaker and lots of other stuff. One of the things I always like to start with is kind of your your origin story, as I like to call it, and not necessarily your background, but, you know, tell me the story of that first time that you put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard that made you want to write a story. Oh, you mean like when the radioactive spider bit me during a thunderstorm and well, that was... <laughs> Something entirely different. As we're recording, I should actually uh, put a little caveat here because I was just at this big convention, pop culture convention in Denver last weekend called Starfest. And that had lots of fans and lots of celebrities and lots of germs. And I'm still home with a little bit of a con crud. So if I'm, if I'm coughing or rasping, that's I, I normally have a great sultry voice. So let's just, let's go with that. Okay, my first origin story of how I wanted to be a writer was fairly recent. It was when I was five years old. <laughs> uh, I was a little kid and my parents let me watch the movie The War of the Worlds and it sort of kept me up all night long and I was just so enthralled with the story and I my thoughts kept spinning. I wanted to do stories like that and so the next day I took uh, scrap paper from beside the phone and I drew pictures of the story of the War of the Worlds because they didn't know how to write yet. I was only five. But I drew pictures and I would tell the story out loud. And uh, that's kind of how I got started. Five years old, I knew, always knew I wanted to be a writer. And I borrowed my dad's little typewriter in his den when I was about eight. And I typed out my first novel and just kept going ever since. How many pages was that first novel, out of curiosity? It was three single space pages long, which is actually pretty impressive for an eight-year-old kid, but yeah, well plotted and everything. Tell me a little bit more about the, the transition between doing this partially as a hobby or maybe on a part-time basis to where you finally realized, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of good at this and hey, I should try doing this, you know, for a living. Well, I, I always sort of hoped I was good at it, but none of the editors at the magazines I sent stories to thought so for, I mean, I started mailing stories out when I was 11 years old and kept trying to get published. And I ended up having 80 rejection slips before my very first thing was ever published. Uh, it was a little Wisconsin high school writings magazine that I had a little story in. And I think I sold a short story for $11.50 when I was a senior in high school and kept sending things to magazines and I really wanted to be a writer. But my parents were more on the pragmatic end. My dad was a bank president and my mom was an accountant. 
and they they said to go to college and major in something that was not creative writing because I I needed to get a degree in something where I could actually get a job which of course no kid wants to hear and so I promised that I wouldn't major in in creative writing so instead I majored in astronomy and Russian history and that's what I got my my college background in but I kept writing stories and sending them around and and I started getting things published not nothing huge but here's another magazine and here's another one and I got nonfiction articles published and short stories and and started building up credentials so when I finally finished from in college I you know I had my background in writing I had my degree in physics astronomy I had my minor in Russian history and I applied for a job as a technical writer for a big government research lab which at the time, this was before the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union crumbled, so the government research lab was worried about things like the Cold War and the Soviet Union. So when I showed up wanting to be a tech writer with my astronomy physics background, my minor in Russian history, my dozen or two dozen short story and article credits, I was just the perfect mix of skills for them. So they hired me as, as a writer. Now, I was just tickled to be making my living by writing, even if it was writing respirator safety manuals and how to handle plutonium in the lab and stuff like that. But I got to work with real scientists and I got to write and and get things published, even though they were, you know, government publications. But I kept writing on the uh, in the evenings and on the weekends and wrote more short stories and finally wrote my first novel and, and eventually got uh, that published. That was a very exciting day on uh, in the the research lab. I was running up and down the halls. I sold my novel. I sold my novel. And everybody thought that I was immediately going to quit my job, which I wanted them to think because they don't understand that a government job with pension and health benefits and vacation and retirement and and a security clearance and a well into the five figures salary. I mean, it was, it was a big solid job, but they don't quite want to know that when you sell your very first novel to a paperback publishing house, you get paid a few thousand dollars. And so we just let them think that I was this important author that I kept working there because I wanted to. And then I sold another novel and then another novel and then a three book contract. And then they asked me if I liked Star Wars and asked me to write Star Wars books. And I wrote oh, comics and on the order of like 54 projects for Lucasfilm and then they asked me to write X-Files books, and then I got in touch with Brian Herbert, and he and I wrote a bunch of Dune novels while I kept writing my own novels. And, and right now, uh, I've published 140 novels, and 56 of them have been bestsellers, and I'm in 30 languages. And so kind of a long way from drawing pictures of War of the Worlds, but that is where it started. But it, but it's always been science fiction for you, right? Well, science, science fiction in the broader sense. I mean, I, any of the fantastics. I mean, I did horror and I did monster stories and fantasy and and uh, some mysteries and some high tech thrillers and basically the stuff that I found interesting to read was never much for the nothing happens in this story but it's mainstream kind of novels. I know I'm sounding snarky there, but you know what I'm talking about. Yep. Yeah, I mean there there needs to be space battles or vampires and werewolves or murders or something like that. Sounds like you have a murder cat. Yes, uh, this is Percival who is joining the interview because uh, the interview is taking us away from his playtime. So he's my first reader. He doesn't understand what he's reading, but he's my first reader. 
why science fiction? What about it draws you both as a reader and as a writer? Well, I grew up in this little tiny, rather boring small town in Wisconsin where nothing ever happened. And when I was reading books, I wanted to be taken away. I wanted to go to uh, exciting places, whether it was castles and knights and sword fights and dragons or the Starship Enterprise or the planet Mars or someplace uh, really interesting. My childhood is very much like what you see in the movie A Christmas Story, and I was the nerdy little kid. And I just wanted to tell stories that made my imagination fired up, and that was always it for me. I, I uh, Again, like I said, I consider it very broad, because I'd also do historical fiction and murder mysteries, and Silence of the Lambs, I think, is a terrific horror novel, even though there's nothing supernatural in it at all. I was a voracious reader and a comic reader, and I watched movies all the time and TV shows, and just constantly kept filling my brain with all kinds of stuff, and it has served me well in my imagination. Like I said, I like to ask a lot of process questions. Um, in terms of your writing, when you approach it, do you approach a writing something um, in your own original world versus you know borrowing someone else's world? Is that a different process? Is it the same? What's different about it? Well, there, mechanically, it's a different process if I'm writing something based on a computer game or Star Wars or Batman or something, because somebody else has to give it their thumbs up at the end of the day. And that somebody else is usually somebody in their legal department or trademarks or something or other. But the reason they asked me in the first place is that they know I'm a fan and that I, I get it. And so I, I dive into whether it's Star Wars or X-Files or the, the Dune novels, or I, I'm doing some comic books based on a computer game right now. It's It's whatever it is, I try to sink into it and figure out what what about that property is what makes their fans so excited. And I think I have a pretty good feel for why people like Star Wars, because I love Star Wars, and why people like Batman, and why people like The X-Files, and why people like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or Star Trek Deep Space Nine, or whatever. You have to get yourself in the mindset of the fan, and again, most of the time I usually already am a fan. But when I'm writing my own stuff, I have more freedom. I can do whatever I want. I can kill whatever characters I want. I can create the world and build it. But you're starting from from a dead stop because you have to create everything, start the story, get the readers to uh, to buy into it and join you and follow for the ride as the, as the story unfolds. If I begin a story that says um, Han Solo and Chewbacca flew the Millennium Falcon to Tatooine, you know what I'm talking about. You know who the characters are. You know what the Millennium Falcon is. You can picture it in your mind. You know what the, the planet Tatooine is. Everybody already knows. So you're you're like off and running from the first word because you're familiar with what I'm talking about. And that that is wonderful. It lets you get right going without explaining things. But on the other hand, you are constrained because Han Solo would only do certain things. And the Millennium Falcon can only do the Kessel Run and under... 12 parsecs and things like that, which is showing my, my geekiness right there. When you're doing your own stuff, you have to explain everything and, and do the world building. And my work is generally big, giant epics with lots of storylines and lots of characters and lots of either worlds or countries or species or cultures, creatures. And so 
you have to unfold the story and and lead people along. And just like three days ago when we're recording this, just three days ago I finished writing a brand new giant epic fantasy called Spine of the Dragon that I've been working on for, well, writing it for a couple of months, but world building and outlining it and doing the characters for many months before that. And you have to start the story. I'm introducing, I think it's got like 15 point of view characters in it, and it's a brand new fantasy world all kinds of history, all kinds of cultures, and you introduce people so that the readers want to read and understand what's going on, but you have to explain things as well, and you got to make sure that you do it well enough. And like the very first chapter starts off with one of our main characters looking as this gigantic dust storm comes rolling over the hills and it's heading toward the city. And this is a medieval fantasy kind of city, and there everybody's scrambling to to batten down the shutters and take all the pots and tables inside and the shop makers are trying to prepare and this is a dust storm that that has come every couple of years but this looks far worse than anything else and and then you lead it from there so you start out with a you know something that looks big and dramatic and scary that lets you explain what the city is like and who this, it's the king who's the main character, and so he's worried about his people, and he's running around trying to help them prepare for the dust storm that's coming in. Then we meet his wife, who's got some little bit of of magic in her bloodline, and she says, this isn't just a dust storm, it's a harbinger, it's bringing something with it, we don't know what it is. And so there it makes it even more suspenseful as, as things keep going. And that's how you introduce the story, as well as the characters and the culture, and you make it exciting enough so that people keep reading and not quite realizing that they're being explained to. Do you find one harder than the other, or are they just different? They're different. I mean, if it's if it's media tie-in, something that, uh, like if I were to write a, a classic Star Trek book right now with Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy, well, I could just jump right into that because I know all of the people and the whole rules and everything. I'm writing some comics based on a computer game, which I haven't played. So there was an awful lot of homework that I had to do in history and background. And let's just say that people who do computer games aren't always that meticulous as far as writing out, say, Bibles and histories and things for us writers to look at. So it's putting a lot of pieces together, but you get into the mindset, and I'm, I'm a storyteller, and storytellers tell stories, and you use your ingredients. If somebody says, I'm supposed to, or if I agree to write a murder mystery set in the Old West, in, in Tombstone, Arizona, or something, I'd still have to do all the research on the Wild West and that historical period. And not just that, I mean, what kind of clothes do they wear? What kind of food did they eat? What kind of medical care was there? All kinds of details that you put into your writing, you still have to do the research. So I have to do the research for an imaginary world like Dune as much as I'd have to do research for a historical world like uh, Tombstone, Arizona. I had gone to the LA Festival of Books, uh, LA Times Festival of Books this past weekend, and I attended the uh, panel with uh, Ben Acker and Ben Blacker talking about uh, the Rogue series that they've been writing for Star Wars. And uh, not only them talking about how apparently Admiral Akbar has a wonderful singing voice, <laughs> but they said that part of the reason that draws them is that it's fan fiction, but you know, sanctified by Lucasfilm, or now Disney, I guess would be the more appropriate phrase. Uh, do you feel like that, that you're basically just writing official fan fiction? Well, you can look at it that way, but you know, when I was a kid, I used to run around playing in the playground and we would make up Star Trek episodes or Lost in Space episodes and things. So it, 
it is that, but I look at it as more to did the people who wrote episodes of Star Trek Voyager were they writing fan fiction? No, they got hired by Star Trek to write an episode. I got hired by by Star Wars to write a novel. The people who write episodes of Castle are they writing fan fiction? No, they're writing in somebody else's universe, but they got hired to create more stories in that universe by the Disney's, the Lucasfilms, the whoever. Somebody decided this is a person that I want to write new stories in our universe. And as a fanboy, I can feel like, cool, I'm writing fan fiction, but we really are, are actually selected by the people who control that universe, whether it's Batman or Superman. The DC Comics people came to me and said, would you write a, a Batman novel? So it's it's a little bit different than, than just writing fan fiction, but I can certainly enjoy it as a fan because it lets me be a fan and make a living at it. Now, um, in terms of, of writing comics, that's obviously, uh, you know, a different medium than, than novels. Do you find that, uh, you know, do you, does your process change when, when writing for comics since it is, you know, you have the visuals to go off of and, and all that other stuff? Well, it's, it's a lot more format driven as in you, if you're writing a comic issue for, for a monthly comic issue, you've got 22 pages. That's it. It's almost like writing a TV script. You've got this many minutes that you have to fill for an hour long show. But when you're doing comics, you also have to pay attention to things like, is this a right-hand page or a left-hand page? You want the reader to turn the page and go, surprise, here's the monster that pops out of Ripley's chest or something like that. So you don't want that to be on the right-hand or on the left-hand page. You want it to be on the right-hand page. I probably screwed whatever to, whatever that was I just said. Or, or, the same, or the same thing. If you have a, especially the Star Wars comics I did, those are big, spectacular scenes, and sometimes you want like a two-page spread of the the Jedi temples and spaceships flying by and, and rebels setting up a base. If it's a two-page spread, obviously you need to make sure that it's on two facing pages rather than a turn page, if, if that makes any sense. So it's that kind of detail you have to worry about with comics, but basically a story is a story. If you learn how to tell a story, you just you just break it up into specific pieces that way. But a comic is more if you, you have to write the script for a page and say there are six panels on this page and panel two is a big one that has um, a ship coming in and, and panel three is a small intimate close-up of a person's eyes and tears coming out of them because they know the person on the ship is about to die or you know, something like that. So it, it's much more like a slideshow, one panel at a time, but it is just telling stories is just a different medium and I love to tell stories. Awesome. Now I know it, it probably varies depending on what project you're working, but on average, do uh, you have the idea first or is it more character driven? It's kind of intertwined. I mean, I, I will often start out with the basic idea, murder mystery in Tombstone, Arizona, and then I'll figure out, okay, who's my character, and, and do I drop in some real historical figure? Is the main character like a an outlaw bank robber who rides into town and only gets framed for murder, but he was an outlaw, but so he's considered guilty, but he didn't do it, so he's got to prove his own innocence, but he's still going to hang one way or the other, and okay, I, just, I literally just made that up. Or is it the general store owner who's the real murderer, and he's trying to frame somebody else, and he's trying to frame the outlaw that came into town because... Who would question it? A guy's an outlaw. He's a bank robber. He's obviously guilty. I might have to write this one. It's kind of sounding interesting. So you come up with the idea, and then you think of some characters, and then the characters start to do stuff that forms the plot. 
and then that comes up with other ideas that you have to come up with other characters to fill that role, and then they might take it in a different direction. And that's that's how it all sort of boils down. Are you typically a uh, you know a gardener, as uh, George R. R. Martin calls it, or as Nancy Kress calls it, a uh, pantser? Do you typically plan, or do you write it as you go? Well... See, if I were trying to build a big skyscraper, I wouldn't say, let's just dig holes and put up walls and hope they all come together. And if they don't, we'll tear down the building and build it up again. I like to have a blueprint before I start a project as big as a novel. And I spend a lot of time mulling over the plot lines and the chapters. And, and I have everything very carefully mapped out before I start writing. And it's it's not just practical, but necessary for me because... I collaborate a lot. I work all the Dune books with Brian Herbert, a whole bunch of Star Wars books with my wife, Rebecca, with a bunch of thrillers with uh, my friend, Doug Beeson. If you're going to collaborate, you both have to have the same roadmap if you're going to be writing your chapters at the same time. And in a separate reason, if I'm writing things like for Star Wars or Star Trek or X-Files, they have a bunch of people that want to know what you're doing. You have to get your outline approved before you start writing. So if you don't outline it, then you don't get approved. So f- for the stuff that I do, I really have to have it well outlined and well plotted out. Now, that doesn't mean I can't change it because when I'm writing a 700-page novel, I spend a whole lot of time thinking about every single intricate detail. And by thinking about that, sometimes I come up with oh, crap, that doesn't work because this person was over here and not over there. And and then you have to do some quick changing. But uh, I do like to have a blueprint in hand before I start bringing in the construction crew and and the bulldozers and the the steam, (laughs) steam engines and everything to get it working. Hi, this is Emily Bergman, and I'm with the Jane Austen Society of North America, and I am geeking out with Angie Fielder Sutton, and we've had a great time. You can find Contents May Vary, the home of the Geek Out podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash contentsmayvary. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the handle Angie F. Sutton. Be sure to give me a review over on iTunes or Stitcher. Finally, I have a newsletter. Be sure to sign up for it over at angiefsutton.com. And now back to my interview with Kevin J. Anderson. And then in terms of your like daily habits, do you have any da- things that you do on a regular basis in terms of getting started or to keep going? Any kind of, um, I guess, uh, habits the wrong word, but, uh, you know, traditions or whatnot? Well, I am I consider writing to be my job and I go into work every day. So, you know, a, a, a lawyer goes into work every day, a doctor goes into work every day and, and I'm a writer. So if I'm working on a novel, I, I pretty much, I will write two chapters a day in the morning and then I will do the afternoon where I'm either editing them or doing email or proofreading something. My process though is I've really trained myself to write by using a digital recorder. I, I live in Colorado and I go off hiking in the beautiful mountains and I have my notes with me for the day's few chapters that I want to write and I'll go walking along the trails and just dictate my stuff. And I've been doing it that way for more than 25 years. And when I come back in, I've had I've got two or three chapters dictated and I will email them off to my typist and She'll transcribe what I dictated and then send it all back to me in a Word file, and I edit it. To me, that's my ritual where I'll, I'll go out and enjoy the Rocky Mountain National Park or the great sand dunes or some beautiful stuff that's here, even just like the bike trails that are around my neighborhood. I'll go hiking for that, and that's, that's one of the ways that I get very productive. 
in fact, I, I really kind of like to mention, because I'm doing something with this book called Spine of the Dragon that I, I mentioned earlier. I'm providing some pretty unprecedented access to my, my fans and other readers and other writers that I've got a website that I set up, and you can get a link to it on, on my website, wordfire.com. It's W-O-R-D-F-I-R-E, wordfire.com, where I'm actually putting up my chapters every day as I write them. So if you if you subscribe to it, you can look over my shoulder and read each chapter as I get it back from the typist. And at a higher subscription level, I've even got it so you can... I'm putting up my audio files every day as I come back in from dictating the novel. I'll put up the audio so you can hear me crunching around on the trail or jumping over rattlesnakes or trudging through snow in a mountain pass or listening to the wind and the rain smacking me because I write every day no matter how bad the weather is. Uh, I don't know too many people who have done stuff like that. Writers are usually more more private, but this is, I call it, I'm like walking on a tightrope in my underwear. So I'm out there writing this novel that I'm very proud of, and uh, I've got most of the, the audio files are up because the book is, I just finished the last chapters dictating them a couple of days ago. And I'm, I'm uploading the audio files and I'm editing the, the chapters as they come back from the typist. So you basically get to look at this uh, this novel as I'm writing it. And like for fans, it comes they'll get to read it maybe a year or two before it gets published. So it, it's a great insight into the process. And then when I've got all the chapters up, I'm going to even upload my detailed outline, uh, my, my treatment and proposal that I send to the agent, and all the steps and all the inside stuff that goes into writing a big novel, and this is about 700 pages long, so it's a pretty hefty thing that I'm, I'm doing as a project. Well, was this something that you did just because it was something that you wanted to do, or did you feel it was like a, I guess, a reaction to kind of how publishing has changed in the last, you know, couple of decades and how, you know, the publishing industry is now more online and more interactive, what with social media and that kind of stuff? Well, it's kind of a little bit of all of that stuff. I'm very active on my own social media with my Twitter and Facebook and blog and all that stuff. So I interact with my fans a great deal. So there's a, a lot more intimacy between the author and the readers just just in general in the way I do things. I've also spent a lot of time teaching other writers and mentoring them. And every year I, I run a big writing conference in Colorado Springs called the Superstars Writing Seminar, which is all about the business of writing and publishing rather than the, the craft of it. So I'm, I've been always teaching other writers. I'm a judge for the Writers of the Future contest, which is where we met a couple of weeks ago. And I'm always helping other writers. And I just thought so many people ask me about my process of, of outlining and of dictating instead of typing. And I thought, well, okay, I'll just open up the whole process to everybody. I'll give unprecedented access and I mean you got to, to pay to subscribe to it but it's not much more than what you pay for a book anyway so this way you get in you get to see all my clunky stuff in the first draft and you can read it and go oh well I'm not that bad of a writer if Kevin Anderson can write that bad on the first time now it's not it's not that bad otherwise I wouldn't let him look at it. but it is my first draft and and it goes through iterations and for anybody who wants to actually go through and pay attention you can see the things that I cut and the things that I move and the things that I pump up and you know obviously when I'm out dictating I'll forget a minor character's name and I'll just have to make up something and go back and fix it later or 
I'll forget a historical detail that I have to go back and research and and it all just gets stitched in and polished. It, it, it wasn't that big of a joke to talk about building a building and needing a blueprint first. So I start with the blueprint and then you build up the frame and then you put in the drywall and then you put in all the plumbing and the electrical and then you do all the carpeting and the painting and then the interior decorating and then you finally do your open house. And there's a lot of steps in doing a novel and uh, this way basically you can see it from the groundbreaking and blueprint aspect of it all the way to uh, the finish. So it's, I don't know that people have done that before. And it's also, it is about the changing in publishing that otherwise in, in the old days, I would write a book and I'd mail it into whoever, HarperCollins or Bantam Books, and then they would edit it and I'd rewrite it and then it would be designed and proofread and then they'd solicit the covers and then we'd go through some promotion and then we'd do pre-orders and it would be you know a year or more before anybody would see the book this way you're seeing it much earlier on in the process and it's just a more democratic and interactive way of reading and interacting with my fans and we'll see it could crash and burn terribly but but i hope not it kind of reminds me, although it's obviously not the exact same thing, back when uh, Stephen King did The Green Mile, when he, he did it in... Uh, right, the little five or six uh, right. segments, right. But he published the finished version. There. I mean, again, it's not the exact same thing, but it reminds me of that, of he did it just to see if it would work, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Well, and Stephen King also was doing electronic publishing. You could actually buy, I don't remember which story or whatever it was, but... You could buy, and he would mail you a computer floppy disk that had his his file on it, and that was the only way you could read it. It's since been reprinted in one of his story collections, but I, I remember that he was always pushing the envelope and doing interesting things. And, you know, you mentioned about how the publishing world has changed, and it, it really has changed in, in many, many ways, and it could be some of them are for the good and some of them are for the the bad, but all of them are for the people with their eyes open and the innovative ones. And and I, I don't want to be a crotchety old fossilized dog that can't learn new tricks. You don't want to shake your fist at the cloud? <laughs> well, sometimes you do, but that doesn't mean that you give up. I mean, I, I, I want to keep writing and you got to keep doing the ways that you can deliver your work to the audience. And a lot of that, I mean, there's a lot more face-to-face -face stuff that I'm doing. I, I, Mentioned the cold I have from the convention I went to last weekend. In in 2016, I did 22 major pop culture shows from New York Comic Con to Denver Comic Con and C2E2 and Emerald City Comic Con. And, and we have a big traveling bookstore and a giant booth where I'm there signing autographs. And we have guest authors and volunteer writing students who help us out. And we saw... Uh, I think it was 1.5 million people that we appeared in front of last year. You know, it's it's like a, a rock band. You can't just sit in the studio and record a CD and put it out there. You have to go on the road and you have to promote things and, and meet your audience and hope that they'll buy your next work. And it's it's a lot more exhausting than sitting in a cabin in the mountains and writing a book and letting somebody else take care of it. I can shake my fist at the sky and say that would be a lot easier, but it's not, and it doesn't do me any good to whine about it. I just want to try to stay one step ahead of whatever the next big change is. Well, and we talked about this briefly when we did meet at the Writers of the Future Award. The state of the science fiction publishing world has, you know, gone through some 
interesting changes the last few years. Um, where do you see it heading in the next, you know, five years or so? Well, it's again gotten a lot more democratic in that people can publish their own books or there are smaller publishers that will release books. And I'm Wordfire Press. I'm a relatively small publisher, but we've still got close to 300 titles that we've released from over 90 authors. We have a lot of using the new technology of print on demand and ebooks and working with people and to uh, design covers. And it's much more hands on. Way back in the whatever 50s and 60s, the authors were never expected to do anything other than write books and eventually maybe go on a talk show on TV or something. But now authors are not just authors. They're the, the publishers. They're the book designers. They're the marketing experts. And a lot of times the newer authors are so cutting edge, they know a lot more about certain aspects than the big boys do because it is changing so fast. And I think there are going to be a lot more books being published. So the thought of the numbers of books going down is, is completely out the window. But it's almost like uh, you're, if you look back at TV shows, when I was a kid, there were three networks on TV. So you had three choices of something to watch uh, every evening. Well, that's great if you happen to be the star of one of those three TV shows. But if you're trying to break in, you don't have very many chances. And now look at Netflix and all the different cable channels and all the different pay-per-view channels and, and the other streaming services and all kinds of things. There is more content being produced now than ever before, but there's also each one. You're, if you're a big hit, you have a way smaller market share than if you were one of those three TV shows. So it, it's different and you just have to take a different approach. And then we're going to kind of go into the final ones. Uh, You said that you you do your conferences and you obviously with the Writers of the Future Award, you coach uh, writers there too. What do you feel is the um, hardest part of of writing for you? Wow. Well, it's it's kind of all is it's all is the hardest part because you have to do all of it now. I love writing. I love making up stuff and, and again, shaking the fist at the sky. If I could just sit around and write books and let somebody else take care of everything else, that would be wonderful, but that isn't what happens. So uh, I try to meet the fans and answer my email. That's the hardest part, just keeping the darn email from overloading all of the time because I'll get 100 messages a day and all of them I have to answer. And that's the difficult part because it takes time away from the writing. But you have to stay on top of everything. It's never been an industry where you could kick back and relax. You have to watch what else is being published, what other authors are coming up in the field, and kind of watch what the trends are. But obviously, you can't try to predict the trends, because by the time you realize that vampire romances with sparkly vampires are hot, it's already passed, because you can't write something and fit into that. So you just try to do as best you can and be passionate about your writing. Tell the stories that really you need to tell and hope that you can pay the bills. And what would you say is the easiest part? Well, I like making up stories and doing nasty things to my characters because I like them so much. And this isn't really a writer's block question because I'm one of those people that I totally understand that writer's block is a you know kind of different for everybody, but it's kind of adjacent to that. Yes, it is your job, but at the same time, you say you love doing it. How do you keep from being burnt out of making it feel like it is, quote unquote, just a job and where you feel like you have to show up? How do you keep it fresh yourself? Well, I've never been a writer to write the same sort of thing all the time. And uh, like I said, Spine of the Dragon is a big epic fantasy. But just before that, I finished up the last big Dune novel that I wrote with Brian Herbert called Navigators of Dune. 
And in the same month, what came out is my grand finale of uh, the Saga of Shadows. It's a huge, sort of like Game of Thrones with planets. It's a huge political space opera that has planets and robots and space battles and aliens. So I did that, and then I turned it on. I'm writing an epic fantasy with dragons and magic in it. And in between, in the next three days, I have to write another short story featuring my zombie private detective named Dan Shamble. And those are cornball spoof mysteries. And so I'll do one of those. And everything feels different. If I was just writing, say my, my character was Sherlock Holmes, like Conan Doyle. If I was just writing Sherlock Holmes stories and they wouldn't let me write anything else, I'd get pretty tired of it after a while. So that's why I'm very happy to keep doing different things. And we also talked, I'm writing comics and, and doing stuff for games. And my wife and I wrote two rock CDs, the lyrics for like 20 songs. And you know, we just do different things. And then we teach writers and mentor writers. And we, we throw the Superstars Writing Seminar every year, which has uh, by now we're up to like 150 attendees every year and a whole bunch of guest speakers. So just the admin on that with the hotels and the banquets and the AV materials, that that's a completely different thing. So we stay busy, but it's always about different things. Your one piece of advice for someone who wants to be a writer, or if you could go back in time and talk to yourself as you were starting out, what would you tell yourself? Well, the, the, the nice one is to be persistent, that it takes a very long time. Think about it as being a professional writer is like trying to make a professional sports team. You don't just say, I want to play football and not practice, 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 and not get yourself in shape and not try out, and, and you're going to fail a bunch of times, and, and only the very, very luckiest ones actually get to make the team. And that's kind of what it's like to be a writer. You don't just sit back and say, I want to be a writer, but I don't want to do the work, and that's, that's what's involved in it. But if you do start selling short stories or start uh, maybe indie publishing some of your books or get through it, a very important piece of advice is, don't quit your day job until you're ready because things like health insurance and vacation and retirement are, are kind of important things and writers don't often have those. More so now than ever. <laughs> and then before my final question, was there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered yet? Well, you know, with all my books, I haven't even talked about the things that I, all the things that I have in progress, but you know, it just keeps me interested to talk about my work and to my, talk about my process and to, meet other writers and help other writers because I like to read too. So I like it when my students get their books published so that I can have something that I can read, especially when they take off and become successful. I can point to them and say, yeah, I kind of helped that person. I'm very happy about it. So again, I'm, I'm a fanboy. I'm a reader. I'm a writer. I do all kinds of things and I just, I love what I'm doing. So it's never, never going to get old. Awesome. Now, uh, the name of the podcast is called Geek Out. So I've been asking everybody I interview, what do you geek out about and why? And it doesn't have to necessarily be what we've already talked about, if it's something w different. In my work, I end up meeting a lot of different people who are also creative talents, but they're not necessarily writers. I understand how writers work because I can do that. I know that magic trick. What I geek out about is when I meet famous musicians or when I meet famous artists or when I meet actors or people that are successful in their fields that I could never do. I can't draw anything, so I'm really in awe when I meet artists. And I can't play a musical instrument, so I'm really in awe when I meet a drummer or a guitar player. So that's what I geek out about. When I get to meet some of my idols in, in fields that are not my own. 
Well, a subset a question of that. Tell me of a time when you, you've called yourself a fanboy a couple of times now. Tell me of a time when you fanboyed out. Well, I, I've had the opportunity to get to know some of the musicians that played some of my favorite music when I was growing up. And I've been very fortunate to be a, a good friend of Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush, who was their music influenced and inspired me so much. And my very first novel, I put in the acknowledgments that uh, it was all inspired by the Rush album, Grace Under Pressure. The novel was Resurrection Inc. and I got it published as a, as a paperback book. And just, I think it was 25 years old and I was very hopeful and I got my, my paperback copies from the publisher when it was published and I autographed one to each of the three members of the band Rush, and I mailed it off to their record label. So proud about it, and you know, a year goes by and I don't hear anything, but I did receive a fan letter, a seven-page single-space fan letter from Neil Peart, the drummer, the lyricist, the guy that wrote the album that inspired my book, and that was my biggest geek out probably of my entire life. Awesome. You're the, like the third author now that I've met that's mentioned. Two of the people I interviewed over at the LA Times Festival of Books mentioned Rush. So apparently sci-fi and Rush go hand in hand. <laughs> They're very good. Yes. And, and Neil and I, we've written just two books together in the last few years called Clockwork Angels and Clockwork Lives. And it's steampunk fantasy adventures that uh, Clockwork Angels is our novel version of the the most recent Rush album, which is a concept album with the story through it. So we wrote the novel, and then we love working together in that universe so much that we wrote a sequel called Clockwork Lives. And so having my name on the same book cover with Neil Peart, who was an idol that I grew up with, okay, you asked about geeking out. That's pretty much geeking out as far as I'm concerned. Awesome. Anything else that you wanted to talk about? Oh, probably hours and hours worth of stuff, but you don't want to do that. So we'll just have to do this again, Angie. We can we can set up a different one later on. And now it's time for Angie Geeks Out. As you may know, I'm a huge fan of the podcast Welcome to Night Vale. I delved into it in 2013 and haven't looked back. As the folks behind it have expanded into other podcasts under the name Night Vale Presents, I've been intrigued by most of their offerings. Both Alice Isn't Dead and Within the Wires are compelling stories that take me on journeys I'm not quite expecting. This geek out, though, is about the third one. It Makes a Sound started in September of 2017 and just finished its nine-episode season. Starring Jacqueline Landgraft, who also wrote and co-directed it, the basic conceit is that Deidre Gardner has found a lost cassette tape from 1992 in her attic. It supposedly contains the only recording of a concert of a local musician, Wim Farrows, and she spends much of the podcast geeking out over him and his music. However, as the season progresses, we hear other people in Deidre's life, most notably her mother, who likely has a form of dementia. With each episode, the implication is that Deidre is doing this less as a tribute to Wim Ferros and more as a way to deal with this aspect of her life and her fear that she may be predisposed to dementia herself. I have a good friend and former teacher who has dementia, and as a result, this show has been difficult to say the least to listen to. Deidre's struggles both with her mom and her own memories of the Wim Farrow's concert are almost painful to listen to at times. There were several times I thought about stopping actually and yet there are other times when her passion for her project and her connection to her mom and the others in her life are sheer joy. The podcast is uncomfortable yes but intentionally so and a reminder that we sometimes should embrace that what scares us. It's a podcast that makes you think about memory, 
and our relationship with others and how important stories are. You can find out more, including how to listen to the podcast, over at nightvalepresents.com. I'll put a link in my show notes. And as Deidre would say, remember Wim Ferros. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks to Kevin for taking the time to talk to me about his writing. You can find out more information about him on his website, wordfire.com. A link to his website is in the article for this podcast, which is at angiefsutton.com. Thanks also to Emily Bergman with the Jane Austen Society for her plug. You can hear her interview in episode 24 covering the 2017 LA Times Festival of Books. Next up is my podcast covering the red carpet for the movie Living Among Us. Until next time, stay geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler Sutton. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Picknickin, available via the Free Music Archive. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike License. More information about the podcast is available on AngieFSutton.com.